Welcome to another episode of Sweet Valley Online, where evil triplets come together to snark Sweet Valley twins and explore the darkness that lurks just beneath the surface of Sweet Valley. We recap three Sweet Valley Twins books each month. You can find all our recaps and previous podcast episodes at sweetvalley.online. We are also on Facebook at facebook.com slash sweetvalleyonline and on Tumblr at sweetvalleyonline.tumblr.com. Our music is provided by Stuart Taylor of Legacy Breakfast. You can contact him at taylorstuart602 at gmail.com if you want to commission your own music. All of this information will be in the show notes. I'm Wing. I'm new to reading Sweet Valley. And I think at this point, I have to admit, I don't hate this series anymore and often enjoy the hell out of Jessica being terrible. It's official. I drank the Kool-Aid. I'm here with my not-so-evil triplets, Dub and Raven, who, even though they have brainwashed me, are still not more evil than I am. I'm Dove. I am a long-time reader of Sweet Valley. I have been reading this particular book that I got to recap since, I'd say, around 1991, and I still can't work out the dimensions of the bloody cave. Uh, I'm Raven. I am new to Sweet Valley. I'm bringing the much-lauded male perspective to the proceedings. The book that I read this week was a big bag of meh, and I am not a real bird. This month, we recapped number 18, Centre of Attention, number 19, The Bully, and number 20, Playing Cookie. In Center of Attention, Alice Wakefield's briefly foreshadowed illness is at full strength, where she's too tired to do anything, doesn't really leave the house, and has to cancel a trip. While she's more open with the kids than I expected she would be, I thought it would be a very secret, nobody talks about, oh my god, all that does is cause them even more stress particularly Jessica, who pretty quickly works herself into a tizzy and convinces herself that her mother is on her deathbed. While she's bossing Stephen and Elizabeth around so they help take care of Alice while Ned is out of town, she also lets her fears slip at school, and the next thing she knows, everyone is treating her with kid gloves. Alice's illness turns out to be not too serious. Jessica's extra relieved, And then she's faced with a moral quandary, which for Jessica, huge deal. She was given the lead in Carnival, the school's next musical, because of Alice's illness. But she learned that her mother would be okay right before the auditions that didn't actually happen. Instead, they gave her the lead. Now she has to decide, does she keep the lead and keep the secret that her mother's healthy? Or does she tell the truth and give up the lead that she wants so very badly? Her guilt gets to her eventually, and she realizes that her mother's illness has changed her priorities, for the length of this book, at least. In the end, she gives up the lead role and actually feels pretty good about telling the truth. The Bully is a story of Dennis Cookman, who is merely a bully because the the narrative says so. He has no motivations whatsoever. He's just big and ugly and described as monstrous. And he is bullying the shit out of everybody at Sweet Valley Middle School for no reason. Elizabeth teams up with Aaron Dallas and Ken Matthews to try and deal with the Dennis Cookman problem. There is a long-winded, convoluted and frankly ridiculous storyline that involves various people staying overnight in a cave called Dead Man's Cave. 
the dimensions of which I can't fucking work out, and this is actually a major fucking plot point. The first few overnight stays go without a hitch, and then it's Dennis's turn to stay overnight in the cave all by himself. And as it turns out, that night, big storm in Sweet Valley, which only ever has rain when the plot demands it, and the cave floods. And this is why the dimensions of the cave are important and it's not bloody described and I can't work it out. So Team Sweet Valley have to form a human chain to drag Dennis out of the cave, which is flooding very, very quickly. Once he pops out of the cave, I think everything's good then. We never get any motivation for why he did what he did. And I think he's just a bully because he's ugly and everyone knows that fat people lumber and ugly people bully. That's just how it rolls in Sweet Valley. There is a side plot about Grace Oliver becoming a unicorn, but I'll go more into that once we get to talking about the book. Okay, my book this week was Playing Hooky. And this week's excitement comes courtesy of a 16-year-old stud, Kent Kellerman, who's shooting an episode of his soap opera in downtown Sweet Valley. Jessica and Lila are determined to watch the filming, even if that means missing gym class to do so. They convince Brooke Dennis, she with the conveniently working on Kent's show, Daddy, to supply them with set passes in return for booster membership. The gym teacher is on jury duty, so the plan is set. Of course, when Elizabeth discovers the gym teacher is not absent, she rushes to save her sister, and Lila is an afterthought. As the girls race back, Liz and Lila are spotted by a teacher as Jessica lags behind. But when punishments are meted out, it seems Jessica and Lila are for the high jump, not Elizabeth. Curse their identical faces! Jessica is banned from the championship basketball game. Yes, the twins now play basketball like pros, please pay attention. But as she's the star player, she invokes twin magic and convinces Elizabeth to let her play in her not-purple shoes. Jess helps win the basketball game. Kent Kellerman has dinner with the Dennises and Elizabeth. There's some other nonsense about interviewing a ballet star. And then the book ends and I had a sandwich. What kind of sandwich did you have? I believe it involved a bespoke cheese product and some nice pickle lily. That sounds disgusting. Was it better than the book? I'd probably say yes. Okay. It depends. It depends. If I was after something to read, then no. If I was after something to eat, then yes. So it was bespoke cheese and what? Pick a lily. What's that? It is a very yellow pickle conglomeration, I think I'd call it, of cucumber, courgettes, and mustard. Very, very tasty. Very, very English. Mr. Wing would like it. That sounds delicious. Mr. Wing. I, I think I do believe his name is Ostrich. True. I'm just worrying about the continuity for like anyone who's just picking this up for the first time. Who's Mr. Wing? Mr. Wing is also named Ostrich. That's all I really need to know. <laughs> All right, so now that we're done talking about delicious-sounding sandwiches, let's move on to the discussion of the books. I want to start out by saying that, y'all, I was really expecting Center of Attention to be terrible and to hate it because I spent years watching my mother die a slow, terrible death, and I have no sympathy for Jessica usually. Pretty much still hate Sweet Valley the place, if not the series, and thought it would be just overall a terrible, shallow depiction of illness. I was wrong. I really enjoyed it. However, the others did not so much enjoy it, so so this should be a rollicking good discussion. The book opened with what I was worrying about, which 
is Jessica being her normal, selfish self. She gets upset because Alice is talking to Elizabeth about stuff Elizabeth loves, but as soon as Jessica comes in to talk about what she loves, which is at this particular moment, the perfect purple sweater that she found at the mall, Alice is too tired to talk and takes herself off to bed. This will be a reoccurring theme throughout the book. Alice is too tired to insert whatever activity needs to be happening and takes herself off to bed. This could well be why she's never done any housework in her life. Oh, twins, can you cook dinner tonight? I've got a little bit of Epstein Bar coming on. See, I think this whole thing was, it could actually be the turning point in Alice's relationship with Jessica. She could, she's actually realised that Jessica's just a vacuous knobhead. And she's like, oh, so what are you doing, Elizabeth? Oh, fantastic. You're on the, the school paper and you're doing this. What are you, are you shopping for a, you're shopping for a purple sweater? Right, I'm tired. I'm off to bed. Bye. The whole illness thing could just be nonsense. Obviously, it proves that it isn't, but there we go. <laughs> it could be nonsense, and it would uh, it would make sense that she doesn't necessarily want to talk fashion with Jessica. But this is pure Jessica, not really caring that someone else is tired or sick or whatever is going on, but simply feeling like they are intentionally ignoring her because she needs to be the center of the world at all times. Can I just point out that nowhere in this book is Stephen like, oh, I'd love to speak to mum. <laughs> Like, either Stephen hates his mother, which is totally fair because she's a dick, or the Jamie Suzannes think that, you know, only girls need mums. Well, all I can say is Stephen's relationship with his mother is brought into starker relief in one of the later books that I've just read that I'll be recapping in a month or two. Um, So I'll I'll withhold comments until then. Now I'm intrigued. I don't even know what he's on about. (laughs) All I'll say is clearly boys don't talk to mommy. They only hang out with daddy. This is a very heterocentric, gender essentialist world of Sweet Valley. No, I, I take offence to that. I mean, Stephen needs someone to make his sandwiches, so that'll be money. <laughs> uh, I think you'll find that the twins tend to make the sandwiches <laughs> around here, and that Stephen really would rather eat his sister's sandwich. My word, that's got dark very, very quickly. We're not on Bleak Valley yet, bloody hell. I will say, though, to be fair, with... Uh, uh, as written, Stephen actually doesn't make sandwiches. He just collects ingredients from the from the fridge, then walks off, and I presume just jams them down his throat one at a time, and then eats a sachet of salt and pepper for seasoning or something. Spreads margarine on his tongue. That just might be a mark of Stephen's intelligence, though, <laughs> or the fact that he's got the attention span of a gnat. So he's looked up how to how to make a sandwich in a cookbook because actually my mum's cookbook from i'd say the 1940s or something actually tells you how to make a good cheese sandwich like a nice little housewife so i reckon he's read something like that uh, i i do have a cookbook that my mum gave me when i went to university uh, back in the uh, early 90s which um was from the 40s i believe and every dish was um prefaced with things like yes you can make a peach cobbler this dish is to be made by two girls <laughs> it was like nice Wow. Yeah, well, this one did actually specify that if you wanted to make your husband a nice sandwich for for work, assuming that, of course, you don't work because it's the 1940s. So, yeah, but original point, Stephen just read, get the ingredients and went, yep, that'll do it and just walked off. 
I think we're now um, moving away from the actual discourse of the book and just discussing Stephen's eating habits. This is the second time we've talked about sandwiches. We're turning into Anna from uh, Frozen. <laughs> is anyone going to say anything about the book, or should we should we talk about our favourite sandwiches? I like tuna mayonnaise. My cheese and pickle lily sandwich was actually quite nice. My favourite part of this whole discussion is the idea that we put margarine on sandwiches. Why wouldn't you? Because we're America. We put mayonnaise and ketchup and sweet mustard and other things filled with sugar. Okay, let's 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 just have a little bit of sandwich discourse for a second. So you've got two pieces of bread. What do you put on the bread before you put the main focus of the sandwich? Say you have a chicken sandwich. Well, I personally would probably put mayonnaise, a spicy mustard, maybe some relish. So you'd spread these things on the bread before you put the chicken on. And then on both sides of the bread? Some people vary. I would. Or I might split the mustard on one side and the mayonnaise on the other. What about butter? Would you put butter on bread for a sandwich? Pretty much never. But what if you just want a chicken sandwich with salt and pepper on it? Like, Otherwise the bread's going to be really boring. It's quite dry. Yeah. I would never eat a chicken sandwich with just chicken, bread, and salted pepper. That's because you need butter or margarine. Oh. Yeah. In the UK, butter on a sandwich is the is the the go to condiment, really, isn't it? And then margarine is the cheaper version of butter if you don't have. And because I work for the dairy industry, margarine is actually evil. Well, it is actually evil. So <laughs> fair point, dairy industry. I think the only time I've ever put butter on bread for a sandwich is if I'm about to grill it for grilled cheese. And so there's butter on the yeah. outside so that it goldens up nicely, but not on of the course. inside where the cheese will touch. Well, what about toast? You'll butter toast, hot toast, yes? Uh, usually, yes. Once it's hot, you butter it and then put jam on it or honey or something sweet. Mm. But you wouldn't really butter anything that would be a sandwich, especially something that would be savoury. Right, back to the podcast? No, uh, no. I thought we were actually doing a, uh, a culinary podcast. We could do that. Sweet and savoury <laughs> valley or something, I don't know. <laughs> but Stephen eats enough, we totally could talk about food every episode. <laughs> anyway, so obviously we're not having too much to say about this book, so let's actually delve into the part where we all disagree. I think that Alice's illness, while not super well-defined, understandably makes Jessica nervous. Her mom never has any energy, she spends all her time in bed, she can't do the things she loves, she postpones a trip to New York City, which is all the way across the country, because she's not feeling well. I think it's understandable that Jessica, who is young and, as we know, prone to being dramatic, freaks the fuck out over this. Dove does not agree. Um, yeah, well, I, I will admit I am pretty much sociopathic when it comes to anybody else dealing with injury or uh, illness or someone dying. Uh this always gets pointed pointed out like when a celebrity dies everyone's like oh my god how can we go on i'm like never met the dude don't really care um anyway um i just think jessica is massively overreacting and i kind of want to bounce her little blonde head against a wall until it resembles a splat of strawberry jam uh because it's the way that it's phrased and i know that it, it was phrased deliberately to emphasize jessica's dramatic tendencies but the sentence, a poor motherless child all alone in the world, it's like you fucking just 
I don't have the words. Okay, first of all, you're an identical twin. Unless someone kills Elizabeth, you're never going to be alone because that bitch is going to cling to you pathetically for the rest of your natural life. And yes, I have read The Sweet Life. Um, you've got a brother, you've got a father. So even if you lost your mum, you're not alone. Add to that, you've got a whole fleet of unicorns that are best mates with you. The whole fucking town worships you. Everywhere you go, there's someone who loves you. And even if they don't love you, you can just pretend to be Elizabeth and then they'll love you. So do not give me this shit about being all alone in the world, you selfish little bitch. I think I'll cut in there. I've got an interesting thing to a point to, to, to say about this. I don't know if this will make it into the podcast, but one of the things about Dove is that she does not like it when other people are ill around her. Um, and you react quite strongly if, for example, I'm feeling slightly under the weather, um, say I'm feeling, say I've eaten a little bit of fish that's gone down the wrong way and I'm feeling, oh, it's not good, then your reaction to that is very, very visceral and very strong, which could be the same said for Jessica's reaction. My objection wasn't to Jessica thinking the end is fucking nigh for Alice. It was the way that she felt that she was going to be all alone in the universe and nobody was ever going to be able to take care of her and all that nonsense when I've just gone on a like four minute rant explaining just how many hundreds of thousands of people Jessica has in her support system. But you are right, I do freak the fuck out when people get ill. I don't like it. No, I mean, that's fair. That's fair what you're saying there. My problem with this book was not so much the fact that she freaked out over the illness or that she felt that she was all alone. It was the fact that there was, seemed to be a bit of a weird duality about the whole thing in that, yes, she was freaked out for a super dramatic over-the-top over reason like Jessica would be, but the way that that manifested itself in reality was like, we have to be good to mum and do all these things, so I am now in charge and I will tell you to aka Stephen and Elizabeth to go and do all the chores while I go and sing a song for mum and cling to her like some sort of depressed mollusk now I thought that was much more of the self-serving Jessica that we've come to expect in that she's shirking responsibilities and doing that and taking the easy way out whereas I think Wing you thought it was much more of a realistic reaction that she, she could have had in that she wanted to spend more time with her mother I don't know about the spending more time. I do think it's very realistic in that, or it's very true to Jessica in that she does blow stuff up very dramatically. She does then take over and very be very self-centered about it. And she does then convince herself that what she's doing is actually the best thing. She absolutely believes that what she's doing is very helpful, that she's doing all sorts of work, and that Elizabeth and Stephen are shirking their duties. But in reality, it's the complete opposite. That is such a Jessica thing to do that it actually intrigues me that Dove doesn't like her being overly dramatic here and feeling like she's going to be all alone in the world. Because that's something that we see every book, that Jessica feels these extreme emotions and always jumps to these unbelievable conclusions it's just Jessica. And normally you guys both love Jessica and her over the top reactions. So I was really surprised when Dove came out so strong 
directly against them here. Uh, I don't necessarily think that she's spending more time with her mother because she's scared of losing her, there, though there are a couple points where she flat out says that. But mostly it is just, I'm doing all this work and organizing things, and that's the most important part, and look at how put upon I am. That's the story she convinces herself, and Jessica convincing herself the story is true is prime Jessica action. Yeah, I guess that the it's very telling that the book is called Centre of Attention rather than Alice is Dying. Yeah, I, I will admit that usually I am all for Jessica being Jessica. I think this one just isn't ever going to work because I was nine when my dad died, leaving me in an abusive situation. Well, that sort of implies that he just fucked off, but no. Um, so... I'm offended by Jessica thinking her life it was going to be that terrible when it clearly wasn't and mine clearly was. And I think I think this is just one of those things that I can't get past. Like like Raven said, I do freak out when people get sick. I, I, I shake, I panic, I have a panic attack. I don't like it. But and I think this is again and I do have a, a solid psychological reason for that as well. Um, so I, I just think. Normally, Jessica, you do you, you magnificent creature. But in this case, you do you and I'll beat you to death. And it's absolutely understandable with the backgrounds that we all bring, how we're reacting to things. I do agree with that. Uh, And the recap itself, listeners, if you go read it, does get pretty in-depth into the histories we bring, uh, abusive childhoods, things like that. So be prepared for that if you do go read it. The other point on which we all really had different reactions was the illness itself, which Dove says in in her comments on the recap that when she read it at 11, she bailed as soon as Alice goes to the doctor and starts getting inconclusive test results because at 11, Dove had figured it out. I'll let her talk about that uh, at the moment, and then I have a comment in response. Well, I think it's like the fact that it could be Epstein-Barr or it could be something else. And at a very young age, I knew that Epstein-Barr is known over here as glandular fever. And at that point, I think I'd had glandular fever and it wasn't that big, big a deal. I'll admit at the time, I didn't know it was a big deal if you get it as an adult. But yeah, so again, my mindset was, oh, for fuck's sake. All this drama over a fucking sore throat and a bit of tiredness. Which over here, obviously, I did not not read it as a kid because this is my first time through so I am looking at it from the adult perspective but even at the age I would have been reading books like this uh, I would have thought of it as mono and it's not really an adult disease it's generally considered a teenager or younger disease it's even kind of nicknamed the kissing disease and and it is often more difficult to go through diseases like that childhood diseases as an adult so I would have kind of understood the the fear about it it was scary enough when it was in a kid one of my siblings had it and it was terrifying to watch the exhaustion and the inability to move and especially in the 80s and early 90s it was kind of treated as this if you walk around too much you might die if you're too active too soon you might die whether that's true or not that was kind of the cultural idea that the this book was published during. So I think it felt more real to me, whereas obviously it was treated as a much more casual thing in the UK. 
I mean, to me, the the disease thing was almost secondary to Jessica's reaction to the whole thing. Um, we, when you touched on the fact that we enjoy Jessica being Jessica, uh, I agree with that in a way. But this seemed like Jessica was just jumping to conclusions in a very unintelligent way. It was like the doctor was saying it could be this or this. And then Jessica was immediately going, it's this, it's cancer. Like she'd Google it on the Internet or something. And, you know. Ironically, Raven has specifically asked for the book called Jumping to Conclusions, yeah. in which Jessica jumps to a conclusion yes. in a very unintelligent way. Yes, I was going to make a point about that. The thing that the... I, I enjoyed that book. We'll get to that in, in, in a couple of months. The thing with that, that the jumping to those conclusions was that the conclusions and the, and the premise was quite an upbeat thing and quite an energetic thing, whereas this is quite a depressing subject if you if you take the whole um subject at a face at face value their mother's ill um, it could be serious turns out it's not serious and that's the story um also without going into the other book this the conclusions that were jumped here would the conclusions jumped to somebody who's never been to a doctor's before and I know that life is all very beautiful in Sweet Valley, but you go to a doctor's and the doctor says, well, it could be this or this, and then you'll have to wait and we'll see. And that's what always happens. And that, that to me, was something that I think that Jessica would know, or at least when Elizabeth and the rest of the family were saying, well, don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll face these things when we come to them, but we have to wait for the test results, for example. Then it seemed to me a bit, a bit of a... It seemed to me a bit of a leap that I thought Jessica wouldn't necessarily take. I think she's much more apt to jumping to conclusions for more exciting reasons. Like, oh, look, there is a light on in the McCandy's place. It's obviously a ghost rather than, oh, look, my mum's just coughed. I think she's got cancer or whatever. You know, it, that seems to be a very negative use of jessica's powers if you like and that's what disappointed me in it i think okay you've convinced me on that uh you haven't convinced me i do think that it is jessica jumping to conclusions in a very negative way and an uninformed way but i still think that that's very true to jessica but also i have seen adults immediately jump to oh my god i'm gonna die or oh my god someone's gonna die uh, with an inconclusive test result, especially when someone is telling them, oh, don't tell your father, we don't want to bother him just yet, and asking the kid to lie. So I have absolutely seen adults make that jump. I could understand an 11 or 12-year-old kid making that jump. It's, I don't know if it's a difference in how healthcare is treated here or just the overall culture of health and illness, but that is that is not an unusual leap to make here, even for fully grown fully informed people so it didn't seem out of character to me but it also didn't seem out of cultural character like that's something that happens frequently yeah i guess in the uk because healthcare is free um that brings one of the negatives in that is sometimes there's a lot more delays in in between getting test results and things because the entire system is overworked to a certain degree so maybe that's why people of our background would would be expected to sort of go to a doctor's and then say okay we'll wait and we'll find out maybe when you're paying for it it comes through quicker or i mean i'm not sure if that's the case but i don't 
don't necessarily know that it comes through quicker, and I don't even know if this fear would really apply in Sweet Valley, where everyone's very rich, but I do think that there's this fear because of the cost of it, so there always is this fear, what happens if it's a worst-case scenario, how are we going to deal with this, how are we going to afford it? And that, or maybe that colors my impact on it. Because I don't think Sweet Valley would necessarily have it, but it's quite possible that a poorer family would have those concerns. Uh, I, one second. Does anybody else want a Breaking Bad Sweet Valley crossover? <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah, get Tony Rizzo driving the, the RV into the desert. Awesome. I That'd be great. guess that would be fun. And I can see Jessica being some sort of drug lord. There'll be a little bit of noise in the background. We have to run an emergency dryer load because Puffin, who is Ostrich's sister, works in law enforcement and they have just been called out because a body has been found. Ooh. So now I've just made this really dark. Wow. Stand by me. Let's do a podcast on that. I know, right? It'd be really interesting. Okay, shall we move on? The end of it, uh, Jessica gets a role in the musical only because her mother is so sick and I don't want to stress her out. Of course, Jessica has found out mere minutes before that Alice is going to be just fine. And the guilt of lying actually weighs on her, which is a huge deal for Jessica Wakefield, as is the fact that she chooses to give up the role. And of course... In very true to character form, she comes out looking like she's on top of the world here. Her mother thinks she's been taking great care of her and helping take care of the house and is really impressed. She looks like she's very magnanimous at school and she's given up this role. And she comes out of this smelling like roses when she really should have ended up in trouble over some of the lies. But she's Jessica Wakefield and she's a winner. So I suppose now we move on to the bully which <sighs> I really, really love the idea of this. Um, I like the idea of a bunch of bullied people coming together to stand up to their bully. I like the subplot of Grace Oliver, uh, a new fledgling unicorn who has to do a load of pledge tasks, and, then, and one of them ends up being have lunch with Dennis Cookman, the bully. Um, I love that kind of idea where a nice timid human being you know who's genuinely good manages to tame a bad guy i mean it's a very classic trope and i will admit that i sort of do like it more than i should but everything was wrong with this book it was badly written it was badly executed they didn't describe the fucking cave haven't mentioned that because it's really doing my head in yeah there were there was a lot wrong with this and my my main beef with this entire book is that bloody cave. First of all, it's in a parking lot where allegedly the entire middle school hangs out when they need to discuss things. So, yay, it's that brand new tradition we've always had. And then they don't describe the cave. So I assume that it's just sort of like a hole in a wall, kind of one of those you just walk into. But by the end of the book, it sort of becomes apparent that that you're sort of spelunking down a hole uh, and it's just baffling like you get a picture of it in your head because they don't bother to describe it and then they're like oh it's flooding everyone's gonna die and people can't climb out it's like well why do you need to climb out it's a fucking cave and also the whole fact that it floods apparently sweet valley uh council saw a bunch of wooded area at the top of a hill and went you know what we really ought to drain the cave uphill into that wooded area. And so they they took a cave, which 
in my opinion, they should have just put a big old fence in front of and then put a hole in the cave all the way to the top of the hill and then were shocked to fucking death that the death cave has now gone from a dangerous place to be to a place that will certainly kill you if it rains. Like, who the fuck makes these decisions? Like, what logic was that? Can I cut in for a second? Go ahead. <laughs> Could it have been that the drainage was actually for the wooded area at the top of the hill? Maybe it was got too swampy and marshy, so they ha- installed a drainage, so that would drain down into the cave or then out of the front of the cave if it's a small hole. So the cave wasn't actually meant... They didn't, they didn't say, hmm, we've got a cave here. We need to start draining the cave. They went, we've got a, wo- we've got a wooded area that we need to drain. Oh, there's a bigger hole in the ground down here that we can drain it into. No one's going to go in there. It's a scary cave. No, Raven. Okay, thank you for that. Um, it's actually phrased that this little passageway between the cave and the wooded area is an overflow pipe for the cave, implying that the cave fills with water and therefore needs to somewhere to run off to. Except for, of course... The cave didn't fucking fill with water until they put a fucking runoff into it, so... Okay, I... Yes, yours is probably solid, but unfortunately they phrased it in such a way as to really highlight the stupidity of Sweet Valley Council. Okay. So, no, denied. Good point, well made. See, I I, I, I mean, if we're going to continue talking for 20 minutes about the fucking cave, then I'm happy to do that. I think the cave, for me, I saw it as um, a little more... A, a little less cave-like and a little more hole-like, because th- that's the only way that it could work. I think it'd be weird if they had, which is basically the side of a hill next to a parking lot with a massive domed archway to walk into the dead man's cave. To me, that's not a scary cave. That's more like a, a, a fairground attraction cave. Well, 11-year-old Dove didn't know what to do with this information. This is a world in which there are six Christmases. So... They can have whatever they damn well like, as the plot requires. In no way am I denigrating the imagination that you put into your cave. What I'm saying is that even though I thought it was a different type of cave, the fact that I thought it was a different type of cave means that what you said was correct, that they didn't describe the fucking cave correctly. I suppose we could talk about the plot-related bits of it uh, as well. So we're not talking about Cave, the book? Well, we can. But we can also bring up those three Muppets who were involved, Elizabeth, Aaron and Ken, who... Oh, and Jimmy Underwood, who is even smaller than Ken Matthews, if you can behold such a thing. OK, let's move on from the cave and start talking about the plot. Yeah, because we get to meet Aaron Dallas for the first time, which is... I meant let's start talking about the plot of land on which the cave is built. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just being a dick. Sorry, to uh, say that again, we'll cut that bit out. No, leave it in. I want the world to know you're a dick. <laughs> I'm pretty sure everyone who's listened to half an episode knows that we're all bags of dicks. This is true. Yeah, so basically, the entire plot is, ooh, the cave is haunted, it's so scary, ooh, only a really brave person will stay there overnight. So Aaron's like, you know what, I'm going to stay there overnight. And then everyone sort of watches him go go in and go, ooh, he's going to die. And then everyone fucks off. Oh, and Dennis Cookman stays with Jimmy Underwood to make sure that he doesn't sneak out the front of the cave. I've got a, I've got a problem with that. OK, never mind. Yes, um, we'll get to that in a sec. And then once 
you know, he's been in there an hour. Aaron sort of goes off the overflow pipe and runs off home and then gets there in time for everyone who's seeing him come out of the cave and go, oh, look, he stayed there overnight. And this is sort of like how it goes. And then next night, Ken goes, then Jimmy. Does Jimmy do it or not? Jimmy eventually does it, yes. Yeah, and then Dennis is the last to go. So what's your beef, Raven? My problem is, um, well, for a start, I think we need to make clear that nobody else knows about this overflow pipe. Um, apart from the council who installed it and the, the, I think it was the older brother of Aaron who, who said, look, have you seen this? There's a, there's a overflow pipe. So as far as everybody else in Sweet Valley is concerned, he's not leaving the cave and going home to sleep. He's staying in the cave. Now, I've got a couple of problems with that. For a start, what, what are his parents doing when he's sort of leaving the house at 6.30 in the morning in order to go and hide in a cave? Why, why, does, why isn't that an issue? Extracurriculars? I, I don't know. I mean, I know 6:30 that... 6.30 in the morning? Wing? So, yes and no, it is. More at the high school level, you could definitely have cross-country running, for example, would start that early. Or we had drumline stuff for marching band that would start that early. At 12, probably not. At least not as regularly as it seems to happen so that this is a normal thing for him to be leaving at 6.30. I think that was my entire problem with this book was the fact that the adults seem to be completely absent. I've just thought, although this doesn't help at all, I think there was also talk of doing a round robin like... Aaron says to Ken, I'll say I'm sleeping at your house. Ken, you say you're at Jimmy's. Jimmy, say you're at mine or whatever. Although that still doesn't explain it because Aaron's got to be at somebody's house. True, true. Yeah, one of my big issues with this book was when Dennis stayed to watch the cave entrance for the entire night with Jimmy Underwood, the subject of his most merciless bullying. Now, because... Dennis had watched the previous evening when one of the kids went into the cave and then came back the following day and lo, he appeared out of the cave again. So on the face of it, he did stay there. Dennis predictably smelt a rat and said, no, I'm going to stay at the mouth of the cave and watch this cave entrance to make sure you haven't snuck off home and gone to sleep in your own bed and make sure you've been staying there like you've said you were. And Jimmy is going to stay with me. And Jimmy's like, all right then, even though he's massively bullied by this guy. My issue is the whole point was to get Dennis to stay at the cave. And I'm pretty sure that spending the night in a car park outside the cave is pretty much the same as spending the night in the cave. You're not wrong there. And also, I don't know, it's weird with Jimmy because um, everyone's like, oh, you're going to have to be so brave to stay in the cave overnight, meaning stay in the cave for 30 minutes, run off home through the overflow pipe. When... The truth is he's stayed out overnight with the person he's most terrified of in the world, Dennis Cookman, already by this point. So it's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, I'll not lie. That whole section was glossed over in a sentence. It was like Jimmy was scared. He was sat outside the cave with Dennis and he hoped that everything would go OK, even though Dennis was a bully. And then literally the next sentence was Jimmy woke up. He seemed to have nodded off and everything was fine. Now, I was hoping for that to be maybe the crux of the story maybe when jimmy and dennis were sat outside the cave they actually got talking and we learned that dennis why dennis was being a bit of a dick and him and and jimmy sort of bonded a little bit and that would have been a much more intelligent and satisfying way to move on the story i think 
No, no. It was just like, yeah, I've slept on the ground, I'm okay, and lo, here comes what's-his-name out of the cave. We have proved that he didn't leave in the night. Yeah, because Dennis had absolutely no motivation for his bullying whatsoever. Like, at the end of the book, he's like, all right, I'm going to go home and have a think about things. Like, he's just being been horrible because it didn't occur to him not to be. Yeah, yeah, I agree entirely. Um, I will say that maybe the fact that he's, he could just stay outside and uh, you know all night and, and watch caves and or then stay in the cave without any sort of contact with his parents, I sort of read into that, that his parents weren't sort of present very actively in his life. Um, and if that's the case, then that's quite sad. However, it seemed that nobody's parents were very active in the, in this story. No, None of the adults did anything. The problem with that theory is that Grace Oliver, who is a pledge for the unicorns, and she's doing her uh, pledge task to get in, takes a baseball glove over to his house and returns it to him. And his mum's like, oh, my God, Dennis, your friend's here. Like, it's your friend. It's It's that girl that I've never met, but she's a friend. Isn't that exciting? You've got a friend. Yeah, I'm not, I'll admit I'd completely forgotten about that. That's just that's correct. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's delighted. I mean, I mean, possibly there's an issue with his dad because he wasn't present for that scene. But at the same time, this would have. Oh no, hang on. I think this was a Saturday morning, or it could have been after school on a Friday night. But either way, I suppose these are traditionally times when someone who works a lot may not be home yeah true but then again when somebody knocks on the door both parents don't necessarily go to the front door and open it mm. i mean the whole thing with the adults in this is brought into stark relief when you look at what mr bowman does to try and because surely the message is this is there's a bully speak to the adults and they go and speak to mr bowman and say he's bullying and mr bowman basically goes i will have a stern word with him and then we will say no more about it look at my ridiculous clothes and that's just not good enough you know, I, I think most listeners, straight readers will know that I do not like the staff of Sweet Valley Middle School. But even that, even Mr. Bowman, who's probably the best teacher, has just proved himself to be an absolute colossal asshat at that stage. Well, I'd have hoped that the moral of the story is, um, you know, bullies are generally being dicks because they have a reason. I mean, I know some of them are just generally dicks and really get off on being, you know, having the power of destroying someone's life. But some of them are, you know, acting out in response to behaviour at home. Um, and that might be something that, in the 80s, bullied kids might might like to know. I don't know. Then again, I suppose when you're being bullied, you're like, I don't really give a shit. Oh, his mum knocks him about. Brilliant. Excellent. Well, that's what you get for shaving my head, you cock. So, maybe not, but... Yeah, I mean, I think this book in, in general was a, a bit of a wasted opportunity in that it didn't really delve into any of the questions that we hoped it was asking. It didn't look into why he was bullying. It didn't look into what was going on in Dennis's life. It didn't even develop in a way that had the bullied kids start to understand what was happening and start to get on with him, even though there was the whole Grace thing. And as we know, it didn't bother to describe the measurements of the cave and that would have been really useful i did think one thing that did, i did like about this was the fact that lila was bullied she was one of the people that dennis was stealing the money from and although there is the part of me that thinks yeah lila's all lila's got to do is, is mention it to her dad and, and dennis will disappear conveniently and never be heard from again 
Um, but it was good to see her sort of humanised. True. And one thing I will give it points for is, um, as I've repeatedly said, the unicorns uh, give Grace a pledge task of ha- of having lunch with Dennis, who is the scariest kid in middle school. And at the end of the book, the unicorns come to understand that just because they weren't punching Grace in the face, they were still bullying her by forcing her to do something that upset her or scared her or whatever. So as a life lesson, that was pretty good for the unicorns. Not not that it's going to stick, but they really could do with that, that lesson because that's pretty much their MO to fuck people's shit up. What we should have done is got the unicorns all into the cave, sealed up both ends and then flooded it. <laughs> just got rid of all of them. They'd have just renamed themselves the seahorses. <laughs> Good work. Okay, so I think we have discussed the bully to death in the sense that it was barely a book. Um, Wing is back with us. I don't know if you assumed she went all quiet, but she actually had tech issues and so vanished into the nothingness. It was very scary. Um, so should we move on to playing hooky, which is yet another gem of the book? Yep, sounds good to me. So in playing hooky, um, playing hooky was an odd one because it seemed to be a number of subplots jammed together into one book. Because although it was called playing hooky, the actual playing hooky part of it was very, very small and didn't really encompass the whole story. Um, briefly, what happens is... Sweet Valley is agog with excitement because Kent Kellerman's new show, All the World, I think it's called. 16-year-old Kent Kellerman, um, the stud muffin of the week that the 12-year-olds are all fawning over. Um, It's filming an episode in in Sweet Valley. Uh, The filming schedule is strict. It's going to be during school hours, unfortunately. Um, And both Lila and Jessica want to go and see Kent Kellerman because if they don't, they will literally explode in, in a hormonal spaff mountain or something i don't know <laughs> so they they decide to go down and see um the filming after they purloin some passes by promising brooke dennis that they will give her a very good audition for the boosters if she can get them set passes from her father who works on the show um so they take the lunch hour off and also miss m- the gym class that follows lunch Solely because because Caroline, the Caroline Pierce, the gossip, has told them that the gym teacher is off on jury duty. So they think that the substitute won't notice that they're not there. And they off they go to the set and they get on the set and they, they get looked at by Kent. And it's all very, 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 very fantastic. However, back in school, Elizabeth learns that Caroline's info on the jury duty of the gym teacher is not good. It's spurious. So she with some time left of lunch, darts to the set downtown to try and find both Lila and Jessica and drag them back. Um, she doesn't manage to drag them back in time. They are, have missed gym class, but when they do return on the way back, they're spotted by, I think it's the, the school secretary, who no one has heard of and I presume nobody hears of again. Um, and therefore, they get into trouble. However, only two of them are spotted, which is Elizabeth and Lila. But the secretary jumps to the conclusions that the person with Lila will obviously be Jessica, so Jessica gets into trouble. Now, that is the whole playing hooky part of the book, and that is over in about 45% of the book, and then it goes on to talk about the punishment that they get for playing hooky, which is basically washing blackboards of an afternoon after school, 
and also no extracurricular activities. And here's the big thing. With no extracurricular activities, it means Jessica, who is the star basketball player on the sixth grade team and ready for the championship game, will not be able to play. Elizabeth's also on this team. So Jessica decides in a great Jessica move that the best way to make sure that they win the championship game is if Jessica pretends to be Elizabeth and plays in Elizabeth's spot on the team, but with Jessica's skill. Now, that was more entertaining and more thought out than the actual hooky part of the book to me. So I wouldn't I, I'd, I think I've preferred it if the book had been called the basketball mix up or something like that, with the hooky part just being the underscored story. To be honest, this book is one of those that just doesn't stay in my head at all, because like you say, it seems like so many B plots mashed together that the only thing I remember is that it's called playing hooky and therefore they do cut class. But I agree with you, like the hooky, the playing hooky part is just really long winded and and boring. And especially since the back of the book gives you the whole synopsis. So, you know, they're going to be caught anyway and that Elizabeth won't. So trying to draw out any suspense is just ridiculous. Also, Elizabeth is insufferable in this book. Yeah, I mean, with the hooky part only basically taking a chapter. I mean, I mean, aside from the basketball plot, there's the Brooke Dennis Booster plot where the the girls, um, sorry, the unicorns decide that if they offer Brooke Dennis a chance of joining the Booster Squad because some one of the teams gone to live in New York or something, then Lila and Jessica will get these passes. But on the other side of that. Elizabeth is trying to enrol Brooke Dennis into becoming a reporter for the Sweet Valley Sixers. So there's a whole other thing where they're talking about giving Brooke a chance to interview world-famous ballet star who is visiting Sweet Valley. He used to be a um, uh, one of the students at Madame Andre's ridiculously insipid school of dance that should have been closed down years ago. But she comes back every year in order to give something back to the people and give a free concert in a park or something like that. Like like the Sweet Valley people need things for free given back to them. Like they don't just leave this massively amazing life anyway. Sophia Rizzo probably uh, appreciates it. <laughs> That's true. Her Tony and Mama. Yeah, well, Tony would love it because if everyone's going to the free concert, he can go and steal some more tellies, which is always good. Now, the thing with that is that could have been a story. That could have been the story itself. Um, and that's quite exciting, I think. Um, a world-famous ballet star coming back to Sweet Valley to give, give a concert. I'd have been quite interested to, to read that because it would give me more opportunity to vent my spleen against the hideous Miss uh, Madame Andre. But one of the... I think it's Jessica who says that about Kent Kellerman filming for what appears to be 25 minutes outside of Sweet Valley Mall or something. Oh, my God, this is the most exciting thing to happen in Sweet Valley for ages. And it's like, well, hang on. There's this basketball, uh, sorry, there's this um, famous ballet dancer coming off to give a concert. Not long ago, there was a Johnny Book concert at three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> Marvelous Marvin lives down the corner and he's really cool. You found some buried treasure and you managed to you know, get people together. There's quite a lot of exciting things that have happened in Sweet Valley. And I guess it is entirely Jessica to go, this is the brand new, the newest thing and it's the coolest. But because the whole thing was sort of dealt in such a throwaway fashion, it, it it didn't ring good with me. I, I'd have preferred I'd have preferred more focus on the basketball plot because that was the bit that was the most well fleshed out. 
Um, yeah. They also in that basketball plot, there was also another girl called was it Billy Layton, who is a new girl who is absolutely fantastic. She's the super ninja athlete from another school. She's the yeah. She's the subject of book twenty five, standing out. And that's cool. When she was introduced in this, I thought it was foreshadowing for the next book. When she was actually quite in, well, not integral, but she had quite an impact in this book. But because they were doing what seemed to be three or four plots all mashed into one, her, the impact wasn't given as not enough real story time, I don't think. I do think that it's absolutely typical for Jessica to glom on to whatever the current thing is and act like it's the best, biggest thing that's ever happened. My problem with it was that the book kind of wants you to do the same thing. Like, just the fact that it's called Playing Cookie means that they want you to believe that this kid filming is the greatest thing that's ever happened and it's super important. But as Raven has said so eloquently, it takes like 30 seconds to read and then everything, the rest of the book is focused on other things. So the book wants you to believe it's the biggest thing. The book itself doesn't even treat it as the biggest thing that happens in the book. And there's so many subplots that could have been full stories. The basketball game, uh, Brooks being torn between the newspaper and being a booster or even Brooke once again dealing with her dad kind of abandoning her for his work which is why she's torn between the newspaper and the booster team. Jessica being asked to dance in some sort of recital for this famous uh, Jessica being asked to dance in some sort of recital for this famous ballet dancer that means she has to choose between ballet and basketball, these two things she apparently loves a lot. Any of those things could have been great plots to carry a whole book. Them sneaking out for 30 seconds worth of story could not carry the whole book, as evidenced by the fact that there's a billion and one subplots here that are all treated with too little time because they're subplots. Also, I'd just like to point out that in this book, the twins are in the basketball playoffs. In Battle of the Cheerleaders, which is number 95, they have literally never played basketball before in their lives. I just thought I'd get that bit of failed continuity in there. Fantastic. I'll look forward to reading that one. As that you one? point out, though, this is a world with six Christmases a year. Yeah, continuity is maybe asking too much. One thing that really didn't strike me as true in this book was when Brooke Brooke was looking for another person to interview after the whole Madame Andre's super, super student interview thing fell to pieces because of twin magic issues going wrong left, right and centre. And they end up interviewing Kent Kellerman because Kent Kellerman goes to dinner with with um, Brooke's dad and Brooke and Elizabeth's invited as well. Now, the thing that I didn't really get or didn't or I couldn't get behind with that was as Elizabeth was leaving the house, she told Jessica, I'm now going to leave and have my have my tea with Kent Kellerman. He's having his tea, his dinner or whatever with the Brooke, uh, the, the Dennis family, and I'm going to be there. And Jessica immediately went, oh, fantastic, can I come? And her mum went, no, I'm afraid you're grounded because of this whole playing hooky thing, wah, wah, wah. 
And then we cut to the next morning, and Jessica's like, oh, it didn't matter, oh, I'm all sad. I don't for a second believe that Jessica didn't do anything other than go, I'm grounded, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to my bedroom, and then hoof out of the window, run round to the Dennis household, pretend to be Elizabeth before Elizabeth arrived, get in there, and then just pounce on Kent Kellerman, because that's exactly what Jessica could have done. And that would have been another part of playing hooky, if you like, leaving without, you know, in school, leaving home without any of the permissions that she might usually look for. Also, I think what you've just described there is best case scenario. I mean, I reckon there's a good chance she would have tied Elizabeth up. Yep, yep, that's true. That, that's a, a very good point. Locked her in the, ba- in the basement with, uh, with Stephen or something. In fact, just her entire family. Like, I've got this gun. <laughs> that's true. That is pure Jessica. And would have made for a better book. Again, this book is just, it could have been great, but wasn't. In that case... Shall we move on to Bleak Valley? Or before we do that, do we want to discuss which one we like best and which one we like least out of the three for this month? That's a good idea. Wing, you go first. Well, I very clearly like Center of Attention best, and I probably like The Bully the least. For obvious reasons. I feel like everything that I could say about that's been said. Uh, Mostly I just thought The Bully didn't make any sense. The cave stuff wasn't described as Dove has gone on extensively about her frustrations with that. The lack of adults taking any interest in the fact that these kids are being bullied was obnoxious. It was just a terrible book. And Raven? Well, despite the fact that I prefer the cheese and pickle early sandwich to playing hooky, I'm actually going to say I think my favourite book was playing hooky. And this, this wouldn't have made my top three in any other week, I don't think. Um, but I think uh, the parts of playing hooky, which weren't about playing hooky, I quite enjoyed. I quite enjoyed the basketball game. They 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 dealt with the basketball game slightly better than they dealt with the the base with the rounders or base. It's just the feeling I get because I'm still so ashamed that I'm starting to like the series. I will say um, next month, no fucking question. Wings book is by far and away the very best one. Absolutely. Yeah, sorry to put all the pressure on you to to sort of like like it and, and enjoy all the things that I enjoyed about it. But yeah, Left Behind is is one of my favourites. I think it's it's actually a book that actually isn't as shallow as all the rest. So I have concerns about this next book because Dove has set the bar so fucking high that I'm afraid I'll go in expecting greatness, be disappointed, and then she'll be all upset that I didn't love this book that she loves. It's okay because the two that follow it are absolute bollocks, so retrospectively you'll be like, my book's a fucking work of art and I will stab anyone who says different. So by the time we get to the podcast, I will love it just by dint of everything else being terrible. Alright, I think we're ready to move on to Bleak Valley. Jessica Wakefield doesn't exist. She's merely a construct in the mind of Elizabeth Wakefield, an abused only child trapped in the basement by unloving parents. Elizabeth Wakefield, whose imagination spawned the whole of Sweet Valley in an attempt to escape her lonely, imprisoned, apocalyptic clusterfuck life, 
the name for Elizabeth's altered reality? This desolate nightmare, the purple underbelly of a cracked psyche, the dark world of her mind and soul? Bleak Valley. Alrighty, well, as I said last month, I think Elizabeth now has a step-sibling. And I know this doesn't, this sort of jumps forward into the bully, but I just wanted to bring it up because it was, we said it last month. So I think Dennis Cookman is an example of the step-sibling, but I don't know how centre of attention falls into that at all. Has anybody got any theories? I don't know that I do have it for centre of attention. It's such an unusual book for Bleak Valley Elizabeth because she doesn't want to be the centre of attention pretty much ever. It's always Jessica taking the centre of attention, Elizabeth uh, riding along behind her twin, except in centre of attention she's really grumpy at Jessica for doing that. Though I guess it does kind of work with the over-the-top reaction to an illness. If Elizabeth is building this world in which she actually has parents who care about her and whom she loves and they love her in return, any sort of sickness would be the end of the world. We could take the sickness as a metaphor for her struggling to continue Bleak Valley, this precious world in which she lives in Sweet Valley, possibly because she has a new step-sibling that's really shaken apart what little bit of a structured life she has. And so the cracks in Sweet Valley are showing as Alice's illness. So it makes sense that Jessica, this popular projection of Elizabeth, uh, is freaked out because if she loses her mother, she really does lose her whole world and that Elizabeth loses all of this world she's constructed if these cracks continue to show. I've just come up with a theory, which is we're all pretty much agreed that uh, Bleak Valley Alice is uh, she's fond of gin at the very least. You know, she has a little tipple for breakfast and keeps going throughout the day. So possibly she's just like passed out on the sofa and the step sibling is ordering Elizabeth around and her way to sort of incorporate this into her sweet valley world is like oh well it's jessica she's my best friend even when she's a nightmare she's my best friend and she's ordering me around because she loves mum so much whereas in reality our little bleak elizabeth is just utterly downtrodden and being ordered around by this new step sibling that she doesn't like and is mean to her and she's just trying to put a narrative behind it that makes it less horrible we know that Alice is in Bleak Valley is fond of the odd intoxicants, but what if she was actually more addicted to something stronger than gin? And the whole illness is actually Alice trying to give up heroin or something really bleak. And the step-sibling could be the child who maybe is a little older than Elizabeth, maybe is like 18, 19, who escaped from the mother a long time, but has decided to come back and help help the mother try and wean herself off this drug. And Bleak Valley Elizabeth is being told to keep very quiet under the stairs and, and can't do anything. But she's seeing that the mother and this illness, shall we say, is making her slightly better. And that is the the dance part that she wants. So in Bleak Valley, she's, look, pro, she's projecting the mother's illness as 
a way to give herself an escape from the horror. So if she can get rid of this horrible addiction, then she might be a much nicer person. And Elizabeth can dance herself and she can, she can be more open and freer. So therefore, by the end of the book, where the reveal is that Alice is actually OK, the negative has happened in Bleak Valley. She's slipped back into her old ways and become more destructive. And that's why Elizabeth's got to that's why Jessica has got to give up the part, because Sweet Valley Elizabeth knows that the hope of her mother getting better and being an actual mother is no longer on the table. I like that. That's heartbreaking. And it gives the stepsister, or it gives the step-sibling idea that Dove has had a, a footing in, in the life that means that they're not necessarily going to be there all the time. Because there could be books in the future where the step-sibling wouldn't really fit into the Bleak Valley narrative. But having it as somebody who can come and go who's a little bit older might be a thing. Yeah. But are they mean to her? Well, that's the only thing, because in that idea that I've just had, they don't know she's there. Yeah, whereas in Second Best, Boys Against Girls and my, well, and the bully, all from my interpretation, they do know she's there and they treat her as, and I generally view this as a boy because of the whole sexism in Boys Against Girls and the fact that Dylan McKay and Tom McKay were boys in, in their little feud and Dennis Cookman again, so. Well, maybe the step-sibling is not Alice's, um, not Sweet Valley Alice, uh, sorry, not Bleak Valley Alice's child, but it's Bleak Valley Ned's child. And Bleak Valley Alice is going through this withdrawal process and trying to get herself better. Bleak Valley Ned is the person who's trying to help her through that, even though he's got his own issues. And therefore, Bleak Valley Ned is not giving his son, the step-sibling, the attention that he usually does so the step-sibling son takes it out on Bleak Valley Elizabeth. So that's why there's more contact between those two. And it also explains why Bleak Valley Alice would fail at getting out from under the yoke of her addiction. Because the person she's got supporting her is Bleak Valley Ned, who is under his own addictions and his own problems. And that's a support group that's not necessarily going to bear the best fruit. It's also possible that if the step-sibling is older, that no matter how he does or does not treat Elizabeth, she's going to view him in Bleak Valley as a threat because all she's been taught is that adults are threats to her. So no matter what he does or doesn't do or any sort of order to be quieter or to spend more time downstairs in her bedroom, which he may not know is as terrible as it is, uh, she would look at as him being just like her parents, very abusive and very demanding and not wanting to have her around. Yeah, that's a good point. I really don't know how playing hooky factors all into this because there's about 87 things going at once. Unless, of course, Elizabeth is just so stressed in Bleak Valley at the moment that she's just, you know, scattergunned her approach because sometimes like you read someone's first chapter of a fan fiction and their lead character is doing about 87 extracurriculars so maybe elizabeth's done the same thing i think you could if you take the idea that there are fractures in sweet valley at the moment elizabeth is kind of fracturing out the chaos of playing hooky does start to look like she's throwing whatever she can to try to spackle over those fractures like whatever it takes to fix sweet valley uh you know star star basketball player or excellent newspaper writing or famous ballerina coming in or booster club needs new members 
or seeking out to see this great celebrity or having dinner with the great celebrity in a way that means he's going to save the badness of the bad article, just whatever it takes to keep Sweet Valley intact as the rest of her life is in such turmoil. That would also explain how in The Bully, not only does Sweet Valley Elizabeth dip a little bit into Bleak Valley and that part you pointed out at the beginning of your recap of where she writes a story about a boy who lives entirely in an imaginary world. So not only is Sweet Valley Elizabeth starting to show some Bleak Valley tendencies, but also there's no description. Nothing makes sense. The cave doesn't make sense. The plan itself doesn't make sense. She can't keep the continuity and the logic going in Sweet Valley because Bleak Valley is so terrible with Alice trying to recover and Ned trying to help her and the step-sibling stepping in and really hurting Elizabeth in different ways. So everything's falling apart and she's desperately trying to hold on to the one thing that helps her. Okay, how about this then? Um, I think I'll just bleak myself a little bit with this one, but here we go. So, <clears throat> the bully. We have the cave. We have the bully himself. Um is this going to be a sexual abuse thing? No, of course it's not. Don't be ridiculous. I was just going to say, like, the cave, and then the bully enters it. Oh, my God. Your mind has gone off into some... I'm, I'm trying to keep it light in the in, in the Bleak Valley universe here. How can you keep that light? It is right there. That is a surface-level metaphor. <sighs> right. It's not going to be a sexual abuse thing because I'm not sick. Right, okay, let's, 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 let's just go back. We have the bully. We have the bully as the step-sibling who is bullying Sweet Valley Elizabeth. We have the cave, which has got a, a way to escape from it. How about... The flooding in the cave is a metaphor for her being repressed and forced in there. And she actually, and the bully is, is the, is the personification of her step sibling. The fact that all of a sudden there's Ken Matthews, who's a small guy, and then there's a smaller guy, is she's trying to reduce the male dominance in her life to smaller and smaller packages. And the fact that the cave is so badly described is because it's just a room in which someone is trapped and is scary with an escape hatch. And in the reality of Bleak Valley, Elizabeth actually escaped from her ha- from her room because she was being constantly bullied by her step-sibling and because the eyes of Ned weren't on her because Ned was too busy looking after the recovering Alice. So she escapes, she gets as far as the garden before Ned notices, drags her back in and batters her. Returns her, broken, in need of hospital attention, to the, the, the cave or the place where she lives. And the entire book of playing hooky is just her broken brain clinging on to all of the plots from previous books that she has sought solace in before. So that's why there's Madame Andre. That's why there's a basketball game. That's why there's Kent Kellerman, who's obviously Johnny Book. That's why there's Brooke Dennis is mentioned and her story. That's why there's booster tryouts, because all of these things have been proven in the past to be able to get her through hard times. And her subconscious injured brain is just grasping onto the straws it can in order to rebuild her psyche. And this was supposed to be the lighter theory? Just well, at least no one's that. touching her. You know, it's not sexual. 
I'm not sure that depth of physical violence is still better than anything else that was going to be said. I did say I, I did say I bleaked out myself on that one. Now I feel bad because I just had one more thing to add to uh, Bleak Valley for the bully, which was that Grace Oliver sort of makes friends with um, Dennis Cookman, and she does it by being very timid but polite and friendly and stuff like that. And I just thought that that was probably more Bleak Valley Elizabeth than Sweet Valley Elizabeth was, because I'm sure that's probably how she feels about the step-sibling, even though he does come across as an adult as well, which in itself is terrifying. But then again, Dennis is demonised. He's repeatedly described as huge and monstrous looking and much larger than the average 12th grader and think 6th grader. I don't know, 12-year-old, that's it. The fact that Dennis is described as, as large does sort of fall in line with having this, this much older step-sibling that's sort of an adult, but not. But it's not quite as bleak as, as Raven's theory. I was going to say, thank God, for once we're not ending this section on the bleakest theory possible, <laughs> because Raven's was amazing but horrific. I think maybe going forward, what we should do is do Bleak Valley after the talk and then after Bleak Valley, talk about our favourite and least favourite books, just to end it on something that is not like, and everyone's dead and nobody has a reason to live. Bye. <laughs> I think that's a great idea because we do tend to have these lighthearted, if passionate discussions and then suddenly we're all, yes, everything's terrible. Elizabeth's been beaten nearly to death. Her brain is trying to grasp any final straw. Have a good episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although we have one follower on Twitter. Like, we literally have one follower on Twitter. And uh, that person did say that Bleak Valley is the best thing ever, which was nice to hear. Well, thank you, Twitter follower. That's delightful. Very, very nice, but also slightly alarming. <laughs> I don't know. Like, if you read these books for ages... Um, the the plot holes really do annoy you. So the minute you're like, well, the, the narrator is a 12-year-old abused child, you're like, that explains everything. Everything makes sense again. This is great. I can go back to enjoying this, even if I'm a monster. All right. So I think that wraps up another episode where we end on kind of a monstrous ending, as always, because we are terrible bags of dicks. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea what we're going to call this one. I was quite... I was moderately taken with... Ken Matthews has a small package, thanks to Raven's phrasing earlier. Nice. I think it it's going to be called something like... So, what were the dimensions of the cave again? <laughs> Describe the cave. If anyone out there understands what the fuck this cave looks like, please send me a drawing, a photo, a picture, a diorama. I don't care. Just, just make me understand, please. If you make it look like sexual parts that would be even better because there is literally no way this cave will ever be anything but a sexual metaphor for me again now (laughs) (laughs) all right it's your turn to wrap us up Dove. thank you for joining us tune in next month and hopefully we'll be slightly less monstrous on our outro i've been dove here with my evil triplets raven and wing and thanks for listening thanks everyone thanks guys we'll never be less monstrous Bye.
Thank you for listening to this month's episode of Sweet Valley Online. You can find all our recaps and previous podcast episodes on our website at sweetvalley.online. Come talk to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash sweetvalleyonline and on Tumblr at sweetvalleyonline.tumblr.com. Thanks again to Stuart Taylor of Legacy Breakfast for our music. We'd love it if you subscribe, rate, and review us at your favorite podcast provider. Thanks again for listening.